0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded September 6th. 2019.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanschel. He's known as the father of landscape architecture. Frederick Law Olmsted designed many parks from New York Central Park to Walnut Hill in New Britain, Connecticut. Today we learn more about Olmsted's upbringing in Hartford and his legacy. Coming up, two landscape architects will join us. First, did you know Olmstead and many of his family members are interred at a family plot in Hartford? I went to Old North Cemetery on Thursday and met up with Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward.
1: We are standing right now on uh, Main Street, just a little bit north of downtown at the entrance to the Hartford's Old North Cemetery. The cemetery really was Hartford's city for the dead in the 19th century. It was founded in 1807 right as the ancient burying ground that had been in in use since the early 1640s, right as it was reaching maximum capacity. Just like Hartford, it's a city, but it's a city for those who have passed over. What is wonderful about this cemetery to me is that it's not only the home of Hartford's 19th century great and good, but it's also the home of the people who transformed Hartford in the 19th century. So you have Daniel Wadsworth, who founded the Wadsworth Athenaeum. You have the Goodwins. You have Governor Trumbull here. You have an Ellsworth. But there are also uh, African-American veterans who volunteered to fight in the Civil War. And along with them, you have Italian Americans who came in the late 19th century, and you have a Jewish section in the cemetery. So it is a cross section not only of Hartford, but of the transformation of America between the years 1800 and the early 1900s.
0: So we're here today with you because uh, we're doing a show about Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, one of these notables that's buried here at the Old North Cemetery. Let's take a walk uh, to Let's walk his family's and see. Uh, stone.
1: In some ways, it's very significant that Olmsted is buried here because Frederick Law Olmsted is the father of American landscape design, and he may be the most important person nationally who's buried here.
0: Well, we're standing uh, in the northern part of the city of Hartford. Um, I understand that uh, Frederick Law Olmsted was born in Hartford. Where do we know?
1: He was born on Ann Street. So. You know, not too far from here, and he definitely was, uh, he was a Hartford native through and through. His father was a successful clothing merchant, so money was not a problem. His father would take him at this early age. They'd, he, he'd put him on a pillow on his horse, and they'd ride around Hartford out to the countryside to see natural scenery. They, they wanted to see the picturesque places in the world, and they went hunting for him. By the time Olmstead was 16, he'd been up and down the Connecticut River Valley to the White Mountains. He'd been to the Adirondacks. What he said about it is that, that all these experiences improved his susceptibility to the power of nature. He had a doting father who, who thankfully indulged this passion for nature.
0: Later on, we're going to hear more about uh, Olmsted's legacy. But now we're walking down uh, in the family plot.
1: Well, yes, and you can see it from here. We're walking down some uh, kind of signature maple trees. Off behind one of these great trees, you can see the Olmsted plot. Really, they've created a small hill. They built a vault into the hill. There are two big pillars on the side a center pillar with family names on it, and then it almost looks like doors across the front that cover the vault where 21 Olmstead family members are buried.
0: I was surprised that it wasn't bigger.
1: It's subdued, but it's not small. You know, it it has real scale and heft. It just doesn't dominate. It doesn't jump out at you. And that is in keeping with his sense that it is the larger landscape that influences people in ways they're not even aware of. It's almost a subconscious power. This is an idea that he was influenced in developing by another person who's buried in the cemetery here, Horace Bushnell, Bushnell Park. Bushnell was probably Hartford's leading 19th century theologian. He had this interesting view of how people reacted to other people. He felt that you will pick up my character regardless of however much I try to fool you. And it's that that subconscious awareness of things that helps you understand people and tells you who you're going to like and who you won't. Olmsted applied that concept in some ways to nature. He felt that a landscape is actually restorative, that it's healing, and that it works on people in the same way. That if the landscape is picturesque, it will heal, it will change, it will calm, it will soothe people who are in it.
0: Uh, well, what's interesting uh, about standing in front of this uh, family stone is right behind it, um, there uh, is a mattress, a comforter, and someone's belonging, someone who is obviously homeless, uh, uh, taking uh, refuge behind the family plot.
1: It, this whole site is moving, but this is as moving as anything I've experienced. And in some ways, it's this is a symbol of... Hartford then and Hartford now in some ways we have some very serious and persistent present day problems but here's a person who whether they know it or not they have chosen to to spend their nights on the vault of a person who felt that nature was restorative and healing and you know that had special properties and uh, I wonder how Frederick Law Olmsted himself might have felt about this. I don't know, but I think there's I think there's a, both a power and an irony in this that neither of which can be escaped.
0: That was Walt Woodward, Connecticut State Historian, showing us the Olmsted Family Vault, where renowned landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted was interred in 1903 inside Old North Cemetery in Hartford. Now we're learning about Olmsted today. Did you know about his Connecticut roots? Joining me now to talk more about his life, uh, Olmsted's life, is author Justin Martin, who wrote "Genius of Place: The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted." Uh, welcome to the show, Justin.
2: Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Have you
0: been to uh, the site of the family vault in Hartford?
2: I have been. Um, in fact, I start when I do a presentation on Olmsted. I often start with a slide that shows that that sort of opus, the Olmsted names etched into it.
0: Uh, when you, we hear uh, Walt Woodward describe Olmsted's upbringing, uh, his special relationship relationship with his father, tell us what you learned about Olmsted and how that shaped uh, how he ended up being this renowned uh, landscape architect.
2: Well, as as Walt mentioned at the top of the segment, um, nature was so much a part. Although Olmsted was a city dweller, he grew up in the city of Hartford, at the time Olmstead was growing up, Hartford only consisted of 20 blocks. And so it was so easy and so quick to get out of the city and into the surrounding hinterlands. And Olmstead did that frequently. Um, Walt mentioned the, the horseback trips that Olmstead would take with his family, where Olmstead would sit on a pillow. His father would put a pillow in front of him on the saddle. Little Olmstead would sit on that. And what I was really struck by about those family trips is Olmstead recalled them as being just silent. His family would for hours travel through the countryside surrounding Harford just in silent reverence reverence of nature. That really stayed with Olmstead. The other thing um, besides just sort of being able to quickly escape out of town, even on foot um, and even as a young child in a different era when there wasn't so much concern about an unintended child, Olmsted also, it's worth mentioning, while while at Hartford attended a number of different schools, he was not an apt pupil, <laughs> and he would often sneak out of school and, again, wander into the countryside. So one cannot overstate how much the availability of the surrounding countryside and Olmsted's experience of it would shape his later career.
0: Uh, many uh, people know him because of his work uh, on uh, Central Park in New York City, uh, but he didn't just go from, uh, you know, Living in a prosperous family and being educated, although you said that he liked to sneak out and be out in the natural world as much as possible, he didn't just become a landscape architect uh, overnight. Can you talk about, uh, I guess, the the, the interesting path that he took uh, to the career that he's known for now?
2: Sure. Well, Olmsted dropped out of school at the age of fourteen, and not such an unusual ta- um, thing in the in the nineteenth century. But it certainly meant he was going to have to find a career um, as a as a fourteen year old. And he he bounced around a lot. He tried being a surveyor, which was sort of a a sensible outdoor job. But um, he he liked the swimming, hiking, and fishing part of surveying. <laughs> the actual the actual math and so forth didn't appeal to him. So that didn't really stick. Uh, He tried being a clerk in Manhattan. That certainly didn't stick. He didn't like having a desk job. But part of his job as a clerk in Manhattan involved going on board of ships that were docked there and kind of um, inventorying them. And that kind of set off a, a notion in his head to try being a sailor. And he took a sailing voyage to China. Um that was certainly great adventure, but he found that he was more of a landlubber. <laughs> so by this time in his early twenties, he really he was gonna have to you know, he was still casting about looking for a, you know, a, a job he could settle into. He tried scientific farming um and ha- um, worked a couple farms, including one in Connecticut, where on, on the Connecticut coastline. And all of these things, the thing, interesting thing with Olmsted is nothing with him was ever lost. And so the experiences he's had, even though he's kind of bouncing around from job to job and, and thing to thing, um, he kind of kept all this sort of gathering in his mind, all these different things, the ocean voyage, the, the um, being a surveyor and so forth, the being a farmer. And ultimately, when he had his opportunity that came sort of by happenstance to become a landscape architect to design central park he was he was ready he brought all of these prior experiences to bear, and that's why the design that's why his designs for Central Park and other parks that he would design are so. Um, special and set apart is because he brought all these other disciplines and ideas to his designs.
0: I was interested uh, before we talk about uh, how he went from uh, designing Central Park to uh, many parks and landscapes around the country. But he also uh, tried uh, journalism and he I was curious how you, if you could tell us more about you know where um, he was assigned and how that also influenced his work
2: Justin. Absolutely. So, so another in his list of careers before he kind of fell into landscape art architecture was being a journalist. And he was a journalist for a startup publication called the New York Times. It was brand new. New York Times, this was a time when you would had, you know, 10, a dozen competing dailies in a major city such as New York City. So the New York Times was trying to get on the map. The idea they came up with was they were going to dispatch a correspondent to travel through the South. This was in the antebellum period, about 10 years before the Civil War. And they wanted this correspondent to report on Um, The agricultural conditions and also the the, – and slavery in the south. Now, Olmsted applied for this job. He had a five-minute interview with the editor and he landed the gig. Part of it was because it was a startup. The New York Times was just kind of you know, kind of all hands on deck. Part of it was because, as I described earlier, Olmsted was a farmer by trade at this point. And the New York Times figured, if we're going to do a a series of dispatches from the South about agricultural and plantation conditions, who better to send than a farmer? And so Olmsted set out. He took two tours of the southern United States, each lasting about six months, created a whole series, I I think 48, if I remember correctly, of dispatches for the Times. And they were just groundbreaking. And... Per usual, although he hadn't yet fallen into the career of landscape architect, his travels through the south really would, maybe more than a lot of his other sort of false starts, would inform him when he became a landscape architect. And the reason why was one of his most enduring observations was he noticed that um, plantations in the south were great physical remove one from another. Often the plantation owners would be 30 or 50 miles away from the next plantation. And by virtue of this, there was very little cultural commerce between plantation owners. And furthermore, um, we we have sort of in our mind from Gone with the Wind, you know, Terra, this big, beautiful mansion. Many of these plantation owners were living very hard-bitten lives. I mean, they had very inefficient kind of um, bare-bones operations. They lived in shabby (laughs) houses, not terror like mansions. And Olmsted observed that they were so they were having to work so hard, they were living at such great remove one from another, that as I said, they, there was a kind of cultural impoverishment. And Olmsted famously said during his entire travels through the South, he never observed a work of Shakespeare, never observed the piano fort. Um, and so when he fell into park making, one of his ideas was he wanted to Um, combat that cultural impoverishment by creating spaces in cities where people of all different kinds would be thrown into close proximity with one another, forced to exchange ideas, and he felt that would foster Mm -hmm. democracy.
0: What about uh, when he observed slavery, the cruelty of it, Justin? uh, You mentioned that his work
2: uh, for The New York
0: Times was groundbreaking, but how did that impact him and also the abolitionist movement?
2: Well, the way it impacted him was it, it really almost said started out with a kind of an economic um, criticism, and a very apt one, of slavery. He he was a farmer himself, and he observed how inefficient plantations were as operations. But then, as he became a firsthand um, observer of plantations, he also saw the incredible cruelty. Um, And that made him um, a critic of slavery, not only on economic grounds, but he became a a red-hot abolitionist. And um, again, that would sort of foster his notions about um, ab- about wanting to have you know democratic spaces um, in in parks, places for people of all backgrounds and all classes to mix and mingle. Um, so that really was born from those travels to the South. I should also it's also worth mentioning that um, his work um, was collected. His his dispatches were collected in a book called The Cotton Kingdom which was read pretty widely, including in Great Britain. And it actually had an effect. It's kind of amazing. Um, Great Britain was kind of on the fence at the beginning of the Civil War. And many, many things tilted Great Britain ultimately to not um, interfere on the side of the South, which is what people were concerned with because Great Britain was very dependent on cotton supply from the South. But one of the many voices, one of the many factors which contributed to Great Britain staying on the sidelines, not interfering on the side of the South um, during the Civil War, was Olmsted's book, The Cotton Kingdom, which helped um, convince people in Great Britain that um, although they were dependent on Southern cotton, that the system of slavery was immoral and evil.
0: I'm speaking with Justin Martin, who's the author of Genius of Place, The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. joining us today from NPR Studios in, in New York. As we learn more about Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, he was born and raised in Connecticut, actually born in Hartford. Uh, Justin, so let's get back to uh, Central Park and, and how uh, Frederick Law Olmsted got involved. He had a co-designer uh, of this space. But tell us, what did Central Park look like before it became Central Park?
2: Before it became Central Park, and why it became Central Park was it was a central piece of land in New York City that was very unattractive and wasn't really possible to develop very easily. Any anyone who's been to Central Park has seen the um, what's called Manhattan mica schist, um, the the piece of rock jutting up out of the ground. Well. While in other parts of Manhattan, it was much deeper below the surface, so you had a lot more soil. In the area that was set aside for Central Park, it was right there at the surface, so you just had the thinnest layer of topsoil and then this rock that was going to make it hard to develop this piece of land. And it over time... Um, it had become the place for so-called nuisance industries. So you had you had people living on this grounds, but they were doing things like raising chickens or raising hogs—things you wouldn't want in in um, you know the populated part of Manhattan, which at this point was beneath Thirty Fourth Street. Central Park starts at Fifty what's now Fifty Ninth Street. So it was kind of in the countryside, as it were, outside of the city of Manhattan, which at that point didn't extend that far north. And this piece of very unattractive land with the piece of rock jutting up out of it. Um, was, as I said, the home for nuisance industri- industries such as hog farmers and also people doing just disgusting things like tanneries where they are creating all kinds of chemicals and effluverance that smell bad. So they had been pushed up to this piece of land. And um, Olmstead's first job was actually clearing this piece of land, knocking down shanties, uh, clearing swamps, clear- clearing these co- kind of toxic um, overflow and getting this piece of land ready for development into a park.
0: Um- When we think about uh, again the design of Central Park, he had a a co-designer. There was a competition that was involved. Uh, Tell us about this uh, this Englishman that Olmsted worked with.
2: Sure. Well, to sort of circle back a little bit, it's it's, it's sort of it's a great backstory to how he connected with this Englishman whose name was Calvert Vox. What happened was, I've described how Olmsted had had this kind of bounce from job to job and career to career. Well, Olmsted was a very much a victim of one of the major economic crashes of of our country's history, the crash of 1857. He was unemployed, he had holes in his shoes, Olmstead did, he owed money to almost everyone he knew. He had the opportunity um, to to go to work, he he found a job where he would be clearing this piece of land. Um, It was a very modest job, Um, he he was, at this point he simply was, um, it was, the park was to be called Central Park, there was an existing design for the park, done by someone else, and Olmstead, you know, at this at this time when he was in economic straits, um, hired on to become the superintendent. Sounds better than it was. It was simply a job that involved clearing this piece of, of very unattractive land. Well, meanwhile, this English-trained architect named Calvert Vaux, he perceived that the existing design for Central Park by someone else was was a very poor design. So Vaux started kind of. Um, um, Asking the board of the future Central Park to table the existing design and to maybe have a design competition, and the board agreed. They said, "Okay, we'll table the existing design, open up a public design competition." At that point, Vox sought out Olmsted to be his partner for the design competition, and Vox didn't seek out Olmsted because he, because Olmsted had established any kind of reputation as a journalist or farmer or anything else. Vox sought that Olmsted, because Olmsted had been out on this piece of land, um, knocking down shanties and draining swamps, and so Vox perceived that Olmsted would have some notion of the lay of the land. What Vox hadn't bargained on was that teaming up with Olmsted, Olmsted, from all these careers he'd had all along the way as surveyor and journalist and so forth, was going to bring this wealth of incredible ideas to their design. Their design, when the public competition happened, there were going to be 33 contestants. Theirs was just the standout. It was the A-plus design. And it was, in large part, even though Vox was the trained architect between the two, it had to do with Olmstead's brilliant, innovative park-making ideas. And as anyone might notice, um, the partnership that would grow from that and, and, and would um, be in place for a number of future parks would always be – Olmsted and Vox. It almost sounds awkward to say Vox and Olmsted. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: the oasis that many of us now enjoy in New York. My guest today, Justin Martin, author of Genius of Place The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, we're learning more about this Connecticut uh, native, uh, Olmsted, born and raised in Hartford, uh, making his mark in Central Park. And coming up after the break, we're going to learn about the other parks and parkways uh, that Frederick Law Olmsted designed, not only here in Connecticut. But around the country.
1: You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded September 6th, 2019.
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today is Justin Martin, who's author of Genius of Place, The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. We're learning more about Olmstead today, a Connecticut native. Now, we know he's famously known for designing Central Park in New York City. My introduction to him was in Buffalo, New York. I lived near Olmsted's Delaware Park, one of several Beautiful spaces Olmsted designed in Buffalo with architect Calvert Vox. Now the six parks there are connected throughout the city by parkways lined with trees. Here in Connecticut, Olmsted also created several parks in New Britain, Hartford and Bridgeport. To tell us more, joining me now in studio is Phil Barlow, founding principal of T- to Design Landscape Architects in New Britain, Connecticut. Phil, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, before we uh, talk more about the, the uh, mark that Olmsted left in Connecticut, I wanted to take a, a few calls. Uh, Linda's calling from West Haven. Linda, go ahead.
3: Hi. A wonderful program. I'm a guide at the New York Botanical Garden. But to get to the point, I had found out recently of a small homestead on Staten Island that was connected to Frederick Law Olmstead. I think I'm not involved, but I think they are looking for funding. Wondering if you knew about that.
0: Well, that's a great question. Uh, let me start with our local landscape architect, uh, Phil Barlow, who I introduced. Uh, I'm just curious about um, some of these places uh, that Olmstead uh, helped design, this one being on Staten Island that Linda mentioned.
4: Sure. Uh, it sounds like one of the places that Olmstead farmed uh, before he became a landscape architect.
0: Um,
2: I, I should interject here. I actually i am on the board of the outfit that um, it, it's his Staten Island farm. Um, that he that he farmed in the 1840s, and um, it's it's in it's in it's a preserved place uh, as as in, as in it's protected, but it's in great disrepair. So, um, the caller was right. Um, there's 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 an effort underway right now to to try to take this uh, historic structure. The farmhouse is still there, as you might imagine. It's a 140 acre farm. So, what it's surrounded by outside of the, of the existing farmhouse, or Burger Kings and, and Taco Bells, but the farmhouse is still there on about an acre of land. It's in a state of disrepair, but there's a real effort underway to try to take this historic spot where Olmstead worked for, for four years and, and restore it.
0: Mm. Uh, Phil, who's in studio with me, I mentioned you are a landscape architect. When were you introduced to Olmstead?
2: I was introduced to
4: Olmsted I think in school. Um, Like many landscape architects I'd never heard of the profession much less Olmsted (laughs) but was introduced to him uh, in school and have since come to kind of worship at his feet as most landscape architects do.
0: Now, your firm is in New Britain, uh, so some of our listeners may know that uh, the park uh, behind the New Britain Museum of American Art, Walnut Hill Park, designed by Olmsted. Tell us more.
4: It is. Uh, Walnut Hill Park is is the pride of New Britain. It is an, it's an Olmstead Park and one of his, his earliest parks, not uh, lo, not long after Central Park. Uh, but his story began in 1867 when Frederick Stanley, founder of the Stanley Works, uh, wrote to Olmsted and ask him to come to New Britain uh, to design the park around the existing reservoir that Stanley and, and other industrialists had built to fight fires. Uh, presumably, Stanley would have known Olmstead through his work at Central Park and also at Seaside Park in Bridgeport. Uh, Olmsted came to New Britain, uh, presumably stayed at Stanley's house per the invitation, mm-hmm. uh, but promptly declined uh, Stanley's invitation to design a park because he responded that there wasn't near enough land uh, to design a park as Olmstead would want and, and as New Britain needed. Uh, Stanley was not a man to be deterred, and uh, Stanley promptly acquired 90 more acres uh, at the bottom of Walnut Hill, um Olmsted came back and did design the plan for Bush, uh, Walnut Hill Park that was implemented over the next few decades.
0: Tell us about the design principles, uh, some of the elements within this Olmsted Park, uh, not only in Walnut Hill, but also Central Park that Olmsted uh, and his co-designer became known for.
4: Sure. Uh, as Justin said, uh, Olmsted's designs were deceptively simple. Uh, components would be a large meadow. Uh, surrounded by a meandering drive, which at that time would have been a carriage drive, uh, informal clumps of trees, um, often a large water body, an irregular shaped uh, lake. And often there would be also a very formal element, a plaza or as it was called at that time, a mall, a walkway, which would be kind of a counterpoint to his informal naturalistic designs. But uh, Walnut Hill Park has all that except the pond. There is no uh, no lake or water body.
0: Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, some may not even know what it means to be a landscape architect. So tell us more about you know what led you to uh, follow this trade.
4: Sure. Um, as a kid, I always wanted to be an architect, um, not knowing about the profession. Um, but discovered landscape architecture through a, uh, a trip through the course catalog and discovered that landscape architecture was really what I was attracted to with architecture, uh, spaces between the buildings, if you will, and open spaces. Uh, so that did lead me to the profession. Um, it, it's a great profession, designing outdoor spaces, uh, much as Olmstead um, kind of led the way.
0: So not necessarily uh, designing a, a garden or a park with uh, gardens, but uh, uh, spaces that connect, uh, that also um, the roadways are also you know, part of the plan and not uh, a park just stuck in a particular spot.
4: Correct. Yeah, you know, we like to say that the landscape architecture is everything outside the building. Uh, <laughs> so we're creating spaces, uh, places for people to use to complement the architecture. Jim in Cheshire. Jim, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say that I've been introduced to Frederick Law Olmstead when I first attended the Lawrenceville School, a prep school in New Jersey, south of Princeton. And he designed what's called the circle there, where the sophomore and junior houses Ring this great circle, and it's one of the defining characteristics of the school. And I wanted to know if any of your guests are familiar with this work there.
0: Uh, Jim, thank you for your call. I'll go to uh, Justin Martin, who wrote uh, Genius of Place: The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, Justin, are you familiar with this location?
2: I'm not familiar with the location, but that's all to say Olmsted was such a busy person and so in demand um, in the 19th century. He did a huge amount of work on not on. And as the gentleman who called alluded to not only um, he's remembered for his parks, but he also designed the grounds of schools, private homes, the U.S. Capitol, and on and on down the line. So it's it's kind of awe-inspiring when 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 you think about. I mean, at a time before air travel or the telephone, somehow Olmsted was able to get all over the country, <laughs> and um, um, you know do do sort of sort of seed the country with his various designs.
0: We got a tweet from a listener, Christina, who writes that in 1845, Olmsted came to Waterbury and worked on the farm of Joseph Welton at the recommendation of Fred Kingsbury. Uh, Phil Barlow, who's the local architect, what can you tell us about that?
4: Uh, certainly that was part of Olmsted's education. Um, as Justin uh, alluded, he followed many paths and went down many roads before he discovered his, his true passion. But yes, that does sound familiar.
0: We also heard uh, from Zach on Facebook that Olmsted uh, Sr., Frederick Law Olmsted, designed the grounds of the Hudson River State Hospital in New York, also the Institute of Living Campus here in Hartford. Uh, So uh, Justin Martin, again, who's joining us from NPR Studios, uh, tell us more about how he became in demand and some of the other places he left his mark.
2: Sure. Well, Central Park was uh, was the ultimate calling card, as you might imagine. It got reviewed the way they review the opening of a these days of a movie, back in those days of a Mozart um, symphony or something, and so it got rave reviews in the press. It was the ultimate calling card, and by virtue of that, Olmsted became very in demand. Um, cities at that point were sort of in the model of Manhattan were very dense, and 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 um, there was a sense that if Land wasn't set aside now. Um, They were just going to fill in. (laughs) And so places like Buffalo, where you said you spent time, um, they were wise enough to um, consult with Olmsted and Vox and to set aside land when there was still land to be set aside in what's now the inner city of these communities, places like Buffalo, Louisville, Milwaukee, all of them approached Olmsted, and he designed wonderful parks for all those places. And as I mentioned earlier, you mentioned the... the, um, um the grounds of a of a hospital. I mean Olmsted's work. It wasn't only um we, we remember him for his park work, but it was also Hospitals and schools and private estates—just um, a, a huge number of different clients that that, that reached out to him.
0: Uh, Phil Barlow, who's in studio with me, founding principal of To Design Landscape Architects in New Britain. I believe uh, Olmsted also—I um, was involved with Trinity College in Hartford. Tell us about that.
4: He was. Uh, Olmsted provided uh, several studies, several plans for the layout of Trinity College. He also. Uh, was consulted on the location of the college when it moved from uh, what we now know as Bushnell Park. Uh, His work there is maybe not as successful as other places. Uh, The historical record uh, shows that his advice often wasn't taken uh, at Trinity, but he certainly did have input into uh, the campus as we see it today.
0: Uh, Justin Martin, you know, you mentioned uh, all of the different places that, uh, or some of the different places that Olmsted uh, worked and designed. And I'm curious, um, as you've mentioned how cities have changed and population has changed, are some of these designs uh, still in play? Are these parkways uh, for cars to travel, uh, do they still work in these areas?
2: It's amazing. I mean, it's one of the most prescient things in the planning of our of our country that fortunately, at a crucial time in the 19th century, when, you know, left, left unchecked, developers would be happy to just fill in land with, with stores and roads and, and um, houses. And so at a crucial time, what happened was all in all of these, what you now think of as the inner city, the inner city of Buffalo, the inner city of Milwaukee, the inner city of Louisville. Um, you had these wonderful cultural bequests, which were created by Olmstead. In a way, it's helped lead to a trend in cities all over the country where people are now moving back into um, the central cities because partly because they have good bones is the term people often use. they are nice, nice buildings that can be turned in that were maybe warehouses that can be turned into apartments. Also there's often a lot of sort of the civic aspects of a city things like the ballet and opera and museums and so forth are often in the middle of the city and along with that all those Olmstead parks, So if you, go, if you look at a place like Detroit or Milwaukee or what have you, the fact that these parks were, as, as the trend towards suburbanization happened, the fact that these parks were part of the, what, what became the inner city made that inner city a draw for some of the trends of the 21st century of people moving back into those places for their cultural um, value.
0: Olmstead showed the value of, of green space. Uh, I'm curious how that might have influenced the conservation movement.
2: Sure. Well, Olmsted had kind of wore two hats. Um, and they're more separate than they might appear. He was very involved in conserving these spaces in the middle of cities. But he also became very involved in the preservation of natural spaces, such as Ni- he was, he was um, a, a key figure in the preservation of Niagara Falls, um, the preservation of Yosemite Valley. And so this was kind of a different hat that Olmsted wore, where he wanted to um, take natural places um that were wilderness or or um, you know they, they weren't part of cities. And although he, he would try to come up with, you know, sort of minimal, you know, maybe, maybe a pathway that would allow um, and railings at Niagara Falls that would allow people to have a nice view, here he was much less obtrusive. His, his goal here was to preserve natural spaces, which, which were also, he perceived, as an inveterate traveler or someone who traveled all over the country by train. Olmsted like was one of the very first people to really notice that some of the natural places, like Yosemite, were under siege from, from industry, from logging and so forth. And so he led the cry to, to preserve these spaces.
0: Mm. Phil Barlow, who's with me, uh, who is a landscape architect uh, from New Britain, Connecticut, you mentioned uh, briefly Seaside Park in Bridgeport. Tell us more about how... Um, Olmsted's mark, uh, did that help uh, make a, a Bridgeport uh, you know, be known for uh, those green spaces? I know there's the, the Beardsley Zoo, which is also part of that area in Buffalo. The Buffalo Zoo is near Delaware Park, and that was also seemed to be like a natural place to put these uh, um, institutions.
4: True. So uh, Bridgeport is known as the Park City, and I think Olmsted has a lot to do with that. Um, he designed Seaside Park at the bequest of P.T. Barnum. Uh, and that 's went on to become a very successful a uh, Bridgeport park, certainly, and also Beardsley uh, Park was designed by Olmstead, so he certainly left his mark on on Bridgeport. Uh, as he did in New Britain uh, and Hartford. Keaney Park,
0: also another?
4: Keeney Park is another uh, park by the Olmsted firm. Uh, it was being designed at the end of Olmsted's working life. Uh, sadly, he uh, was hospitalized uh, at the end of his life at, at a uh, what was then called a mental institution. Uh, so he was phasing himself out of the firm at the time that Keeney was designed, mainly by uh, landscape architect and his mm-hmm. employee, Charles Elliott.
0: Uh, we're getting a tweet from Kate, uh, who writes, The town of Beacon Falls, Connecticut, was designed by the Olmsted Brothers, who created a design for company lands and buildings for the Beacon Falls Rubber Shoe Company on Main Street. Uh, Justin Martin, tell us how Olmsted sons uh, kept uh, this uh, landscape architecture uh, going in the family.
2: Well, it was, it was a family business that Olmsted had pioneered, and so it was sort of naturally set up for his sons to take over. And one of the sort of more amusing things is, his son was Frederick Law Olmstead, Jr. He often dropped the junior professionally. Um, and so what you would see is is there had been an Olmstead – Central Park was designed starting in 1857. Frederick Law Olmstead, Jr. Um, did his last projects in 1957. So it appeared that there was an Olmstead at work doing landscape work for 100 years. <laughs> but it was actually father, then son, <laughs> or sons because there were um, – it was, it was the Olmstead brothers who – who started that firm. And they picked up, they basically picked up the ready-made um, profession that their father pioneered. And they kind of, you might say they professionalized it. For instance, Frederick Olmstead Jr. Um, was involved in setting up the very first landscape architecture program in an academic setting at Harvard University. Um, they, um, so they sort of professionalized this industry that their father pioneered. Um, they had the benefit of the telephone the airplane by later in their careers, and so where Olmsted was able to cover a lot of ground, they really covered a lot of ground. And the person who sent that tweet, I believe, made allusion to um, some corporate work. As you might imagine, one of their one of their main projects, the Olmsted brothers, along with park work and so forth, was doing a huge amount of corporate campuses, and w- which was something Olmsted Senior was not so involved in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, they did a number of corporate campuses, including, um, I believe, the Aetna campus, which I believe is in Hartford.
0: No, right around the corner from uh, where we are located. Uh, Justin Martin, again, is author of Genius of Place, The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, he's going to stick around with us uh, from NPR Studios in New York City. But I want to thank Phil Barlow, founding principal of Two Design Landscape Architects in New Britain, to tell us more about Olmsted's uh, mark uh, here in Connecticut. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to learn more about Olmsted's legacy and how uh, his designs are influencing other landscape architects. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded September 6th, 2019.
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. The work of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted is found around the country. Olmsted was born and raised in Connecticut, and we're learning more about him today uh, from Justin Martin, author of Genius of Place, The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, We wanted to hear more from uh, landscape architects about how uh, their work has been um, uh, influenced by uh, Frederick Law Olmsted. So we're going to be hearing from Becca Sturgis and just a little bit principal landscape architect at Reed Hildebrand, uh, who runs their New Haven office, uh, but uh, Justin, when you've been doing your research, I'm curious um, when people think about Olmstead today, are they aware of all the places that uh, were he designed?
2: They certainly are. the The list is just massive. He was he was a really Um, He had sort of scattered energies as a younger man. He focused those energies as a landscape architect. And it is remarkable, particularly in the 19th century, where he was restricted to horse and train travel, how many places he went and how many projects he was involved in. And just to give a partial list, I mean, everything from the campus of Stanford University all the way out on the West Coast to the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, um, a massive sprawling estate. Um, that was owned by William Vanderbilt, then the richest man in um, um, in the world, um, to um, parks in Milwaukee, to the grounds of the um, Capitol um, in in Washington D.C. Um, so he 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 spread his work far and wide, kind of like an app, a Johnny Appleseed of landscape <laughs> architecture.
0: <laughs> uh, Becca Sturge is now joining us by phone. Becca, are you there? I am. Hello. Uh, thank you for calling in today. Uh, we were learning about uh, how uh, Olmstead has done so much in our state of Connecticut and how he found inspiration from his upbringing uh, in Connecticut. I'm wondering um, uh, when you were introduced to Olmstead and how that influenced your work.
3: I was introduced to Olmstead, I think, when I was you know, about three in New York City. Um, and I was Playing in Central Park, and uh, I I think basically overheard my mother talking to someone about why the park was so great, and um, I don't remember her saying said, but I kind of remember <laughs> coming to a stop and being like, oh, this was this was made, and I think that's the sort of moments that I think many of us have had where you think something is a given, you think it's always been that way, mm-hmm. and suddenly you realize it was a creation or, or it's been, you know, impacted. Um, but I didn't hear, I think, um, Bill was saying this too, like I, I didn't actually know there was a profession of landscape architecture until I was in my 20s. Um, so somehow, despite that incredible interest and love of parks, um, both small parks, town parks, national parks, that I had had for a long time. I hadn't realized that there was a profession where you could be involved in making landscape.
0: So we heard earlier about uh, how Olmsted uh, and his co-designer uh, when they were working together Calvert Vaux uh, how they connected uh, these spaces together um and the principles of bringing people into these parks even if they're from different walks of life. I'm curious about what the principles are that that you use that, that to design and if they are drawn from Olmsted's work at all.
3: Yeah, it's such a great question and absolutely. I think his um, Something I was, I was thinking about in terms of this program today is that in some ways because Olmsted came very much out of the farming tradition in America and identified as a farmer for you know, such a period of his life, he really thought of the land as something that was productive and something that contributed to the very essential parts of what makes life and what makes a society. And I think a funny thing has happened over the last, you know, 100 plus years where we often have started to think of nature or plants as ornamental and in some way not essential to the functioning of our lives. And I think one of the things that Olmsted did that we constantly try and do is think about what's most essential and how can we bridge kind of natural systems and what humans need to live happy and successful lives. Um, you know, how, how can both things, the natural world and people, thrive? Mm. Um, but I think the question that you're getting at of in terms of like people's health and you know, air quality and water quality, these are all things that we constantly think about. And then today with the way I think we're all thinking about issues of inclusion and access, these are critical um, issues that basically come up in every single project that we have. How does one person get from place A to place B? Um, and in Connecticut, where we have a lot of interesting topography, we ha- you know, the ground really shifts and um, it's hard for many people to get around. And so how, how do you make that work for people?
0: Oh, well, we got a, a comment on Facebook from, from Orlean, who writes that the building of Central Park meant the destruction of Seneca Village, a large community of African-American landowners. Um, and she wanted us to acknowledge how indigenous and black communities have been displaced and devastated by uh, a development. And I'm wondering if, if you could uh, talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, I'm so glad that that, um, that issue has surfaced. I think the kind of history of development in our country and the history of, you know, property. Um, and often, you know, people use language or even, you know, believe that they're making the world a better place, but the, some of the assumptions that are used for, you know, making these great new places um, don't acknowledge the suffering that, that is, you know, mm. happening to others. And I, I think that that happened in Central Park, but it happened in many, many other
0: places. As well. but Justin Martin's with us, who wrote *Genius of Place: The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted*. Justin, uh, did you want to add to that? I know you live in, in New York City as well.
2: Sure. All, all I'd add is, yes, is indeed, Seneca Village was a um, it was a community of free African Americans um, there, and um, it was actually um, they were cleared from the land before Olmsted's involvement in the project for what it's worth <laughs> however that said um, as, as Beck alluded it's part of a, a long and unfortunate um, history in our country of displacement of 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 um, um, of people particularly minority people so it's it's um I guess I guess sort of the um, the good news is, is, there's been a lot of historical research in recent years, and you can even take a tour of Central Park, specifically focused now on Seneca Village, where you know they've they've tried to um, reconstruct some of the history. So it's an unfortunate chapter in history, but it's also being um, acknowledged and considered, which which is good.
0: Mm. Well, we're talking about Olmstead again today, who is a Connecticut native, uh, someone who died more than 100 years ago. You know, how should we be remembering uh, his legacy, uh, Justin?
2: We should be remembering Olmsted's legacy. is It's it's wonderful. It's it's still with us. That's 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 I guess the best part of it is is um, his legacy is is a legacy of of sort of as Beck alluded to of, of sort of placing a value on nature, placing a value on the need for people to to um, experience nature even if they're city dwellers. And his legacy is um, in in. Countless communities across our nation is still with us in the parks that people are using um, here in the 21st century, which is kind of amazing.
0: Mm. Uh, Becca Sturtis is also with us again. She's principal landscape architect at Reed Hildebrand. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Becca, you know, these days, uh, there seems to be an appreciation again of nature, uh, of the urgency of how our, our world is changing with threats of climate change. Um, when, as uh, we talk about Olmsted's legacy, again, uh, is something that we need to put first and foremost is the importance of nature and, and how to preserve but also connect?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think on trying to understand wh- how those systems operate, right? being kind of as sensitive to the systems that make nature work as the ones of our friends and family, so that we can kind of reconcile two different two different forces, <laughs> human forces and natural forces.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Well, I want to thank Becca for joining us today uh, from her New Haven office, again, Principal Landscape Architect at Reed Hildebrand, and Justin Martin, who joined us from NPR Studios in New York, author of Genius of Place, The Life of Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, Justin, we thank you. Oh, thanks. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolfe. You can learn more about the show. Just download our podcast on your favorite podcast app.